So the objectives for uh, this lecture are stated here. Uh, we will describe specific and drug class specific uh, risk factors for infections in uh, patients with hemolignancies uh, and uh, post uh, stem cell transplant. We will briefly review prophylactic recommendations for this group of patients, and uh, I will tell you where to look for it. Um, we will briefly go over the concept of febrile mucositis on so mucosal barrier damage, and uh, then we will uh, again review the management of febrile uh, neutropenia, and then Dr. Baluch will take over and briefly go uh, goes over um, the type of infections uh, and uh, what to look for in patients undergoing stem cell transplant. So as uh, we all know infections is a very significant cause of morbidity and mortality in uh, our patient population that we see here at Moffitt. Um, and uh, uh, the risk of infection specifically is higher in um, I would call solid uh, liquid uh, malignancies comparing to solid uh, tumors. Um, for multiple reasons, it's because uh, patients with hematologic malignancies um, uh, have multiple immune deficiency coming in already for their treatment. So we're talking about neutropenia from the disease, uh, defects in the adaptive B-cell mediated immunity, uh, functional or anatomical asplenia. Plus, on the top of it, we give them uh, very harsh, aggressive treatment regimens that can cause or cause further immunosuppression. Um, so you should treat these patients as your own children and family members because uh, these are your top sickest patients that you potentially will encounter uh, when you practice infectious disease. Uh, so we will start uh, with a patient case. So you have a 50-year-old male with a prior history of uh, diabetes, hypertension, uh, who was transferred from the outside hospital with a newly diagnosed acute myelogenous leukemia. And this would be your standard consult that would pop um, on 4 North. Uh, so we see plenty of these patients. Here at Moffitt, I'm sure you'll see some uh, at Tampa General Hospital on their oncology floor. Um, but this is your typical AML induction, new patient coming in for treatment, Moffitt patient. So on arrival, you see that vital signs are stable and uh, his exam is relatively benign as well, except some ecchymosis. Uh, he already has right armpit in place. Um, then you go look at his labs. You see that he is already neutropenic uh, from his underlying leukemia. His ANC is 240. There are 34% of blasts as well present uh, for the remaining of the white blood cell count. So there is a pancytopenia uh, throughout, and he has normal renal and liver function. Um, then you go and look at uh, the hematology team note and uh, uh, that states that he's about to start 7 plus 3 chemotherapy. Uh, and ID is consulted for uh, neutropenia and antibiotic recommendations or impending neutropenia. Uh, again, this is your standard patient that uh, you will see uh, when working on uh, general ID service. 
So just by looking at everything that I stated here, it seems to be very easy, patient is stable. So your job as infectious disease physician here at Buffett is to identify um, what particular infections patients is at risk for. And you need to look at the patient as a whole. So even though everything is stable, no acute issues, you really need to pay attention. What are the risk factors this patient has? What's the underlying malignancy? What's the regimen is, the patient is going to uh, uh, get? Is it the regimen that puts you at risk for severe mucositis that would increase your risk of uh, GI translocation? Um, is it the patient who has a history of ESBL, which means that, yes, once this patient develops mucositis, he's, he's going to be at risk for um, having this ESBL again. And uh, on uh, this slide, um, I summarize some risk factors. Again, when you have a consult uh, here for impending neutropenia, uh, take a look at all of this uh, and uh, try to either find information in the chart. If you don't know, um, uh, talk to your hematology team uh, providers. Um, so again, what's the underlying diagnosis? And uh, this information can tell you the disease-specific risk factors. Again, for example, if you have a patient with AML, you know that this is the patient who will be undergoing very intensive aggressive chemotherapy um, uh, with um, uh, likely mucositis and uh, prolonged neutropenia. Uh, if you have a patient with an ALL, just by having ALL itself, you know that this patient will be at a higher risk for PCP. Uh, number two, what's the chemotherapy regimen uh, chosen? And what's the anticipated duration of neutropenia? The patients that uh, have a duration of neutropenia of seven versus, let's say, 28 days, again, the, the risk factors are vastly different in, in those two patients. Um, what are the comorbidities and home medications? Is this patient on, on an antiarrhythmic? Is there a concern for prolonged QTC? All of those uh, uh, can uh, guide you in what medications you're going to choose for prophylaxis. Uh, and then uh, going to the right side, um, the presence of enveloping devices uh, puts patients, of course, at higher risk for catheter-associated infections, no matter which catheter it is, the CVC, PICLINE, POLY, AMIA, and so forth. I'll go on the next slide. And just to remind you guys that the exact definitions of neutropenia uh, may vary depending on which institution you go. So typically neutropenia is defined by ANC less than 1,000. Severe neutropenia is defined as an ANC less than 500 or it's expected to decrease decrease within uh, next 48 hours. The profound neutropenia is defined uh, in C less than uh, 100. And uh, here you see um, your high-risk patients. Um, so you have either neutropenia duration for more than seven days, um, or you have patients with uh, significant renal 
uh, and or hepatic dysfunction regardless of the duration of neutropenia. And there are multiple calculators that you can find online um, how to calculate the ANC, but again, if you look at the differential, essentially you will see that number there. Um, and uh, for a lot of our patients, there will be no number listed because they do not have any neutrophil neutrophils at all. So this is just one example uh, why it's important to look at the disease-specific infectious risk. So for example, if you have a patient with uh, AML uh, and MDS, the baseline neutropenia coming into the treatment is very common. And what's important to remember that the median time to ANC recovery uh, while they're undergoing standard intensive induction chemotherapy is 26 days. So that's, that's a long time. So th these are your highest risk patients that are at risk for uh, your standard bacterial infections, translocation, viral infections, fungal infections, including both uh, candela infections and the mold infections. Um, these patients have a lot of fevers. So on 4 North, we see a lot of fevers. And uh, based on the studies, uh, you'll see that the risk of uh, having a neutropenic fever in this category of patients is, is close to 90%. So it's a good chance that your patient will have a fever at some point. Into the next slide. Um, so here, uh, there are two slides where I uh, listed a table uh, from a good review that goes uh, um, uh, by a, a disease, as you see on the left, uh, and uh, also it includes uh, the treatment regimens. And then here on the right, you see uh, what are the type infections and uh, what is the infectious risks that these patients are um, uh, as patients have. So you see your AML patients are really your uh, most high-risk patients that uh, you will encounter. So, you know, this, this table sometimes um, I look at it myself. Of course, I'm not an oncologist and, um, you know, there is a lot of chemotherapy regimens and uh, uh, new drugs uh, such as TKIs, immunotherapy drugs, um, that you will see are used in our patients. So either you, I think it's very important to look what your patient is getting in terms of the treatment. And um, if you are still not sure, our pharmacists are absolutely amazing and excellent resource. They will help you out with that. So here's just a continuation. Again, it goes by disease, treatment regimen, your infectious risk and the type of infections that, that these patients are. Uh, at risk for. Um, also on the top of this, um, also remember that uh, steroids that are very uh, commonly used in our patients, specifically in um, uh, lymphoid malignancies, um, put you uh, at higher risk uh, for um, your standard bacterial infections such as bacteremia and sepsis, but also put you at higher risk for viral reactivations and also PCP. So something to be aware of. Um, also here I have um, uh, 
just uh, uh, something that you always should remember that the patient who is on a high dose of steroids, um, this is the patient you really need to go and do a good physical exam because uh, a lot of times there will be no fevers, patient will not uh, complain of abdominal pain. So it's a common, uh, um, it's a common knowledge that steroids can um, uh, mask fevers, rigors, abdominal pain. So it, it's very important to do a thorough evaluation uh, uh, of this patient. Um, then um, you will see that we use a lot of monoclonal antibodies and specifically for um, uh, CD20 monoclonal antibody, uh, for example, rituximab, there are uh, newer agents as well. Uh, also remember that um, there is increased risk for viral reactivations and uh, uh, specifically uh, there is a high uh, rate of HPV reactivations in patients with uh, chronic hepatitis, even with a just isolated hepatitis B4. Um, all right. Uh, and just uh, so some things up that I just mentioned. Um, when you have eval when you evaluate patient with a hematologic malignancy, uh, please take some time to go over uh, the history and uh, identify disease and drug class specific risk factors. Um, then once you reviewed all of this information, the next question to you as a consultant, how can I help this patient uh, to prevent uh, certain infections or some infections? Uh, so now we will briefly talk about the resources for antimicrobial prophylaxis. So again, the strategies uh, will vary from guidelines to guidelines and institutions to institutions. So it, it might be that um, you go to, you know, a different cancer center and they, they will start their antimicrobial prophylaxis when their ANC is less than 1,000 uh, versus when ANC less than uh, 500. So a lot of it, it's a protocol driven based on, on the institution protocols. Uh, uh, but you should be familiar with the uh, uh, IDSA guidelines as well. Um, so these are the two main resources uh, that you will uh, need to be aware, especially if you are interested in this field. Uh, so uh, this slide is a little old right now. So that was uh, published in 2010, and uh, specifically it addresses uh, um, prophylaxis in uh, neutropenic patients with cancer. Then the update was published in 2018, and they also have a newer uh, paper uh, on antimicrobial prophylaxis and febrile neutropenia treatment in low-risk patients uh, that can be treated as an outpatient. Uh, when uh, you work at Moffitt, there is an um, absolutely amazing document that I think you should all have on your desktop. So this is the antimicrobial guide um, that has been updated yearly by our antimicrobial stewardship team. And uh, Yanina is uh, one of the main authors. Uh, Yanina, please say hi. <laughs> uh, and uh, one of the sections of this antimicrobial guide uh, 
goes over in details again which prophylaxis would you use in patients with uh, uh, hematologic malignancies again this goes by diagnosis um, the regimens that the patient use uh, and um, uh, the recommended uh, antimicrobial prophylaxis again even though idsa might tell you you know this is the standard recommendation sometimes institutional guidelines might differ. All right, so it's just going back to our patient. So our patient was started on ciprofloxacin, acyclovir, and mycofungin prophylaxis. Um, what, what's also important to remember that when our patients are getting um, the treatments for my uh, for their malignancies, uh, there is a potential for a lot of drug-drug interactions. So initially, when you just start seeing patients, we might not be able to use uh, um, the drugs that you think is the best for the patient. But you should relate to the primary team that when the drug-drug interactions allow, that's what you want this patient to be on. Uh, so because you expect uh, prolonged neutropenia in this patient, this is why um, your drug of choice uh, for antifungal prophylaxis would be boriconazole uh, and not mycofungin. But mycofungin is acceptable in the beginning until you can make this transition. So then you see that on hospital day 15, a patient developed a fever of 101.6, tachycardia, but otherwise remains stable. So at this point, um, you go into a different mode. Now your patient has a neutropenic fever. And we will briefly again go over neutropenic fever and I'll show you some resources. Um, so remember neutropenic fever is a medical emergency. Um, this is really something that you should take seriously. Um, this is something that if, if the resident calls you in the middle of the night and you're on call. This is something that you really should wake up, go over the history, potentially log in. And if you are not sure, it's appropriate to call your uh, attending. So these are very sick patients um, that at high risk for mortality if uh, appropriate antibiotics are not used. And this goes more if your patient has a history of ESBL, KPC, shock, um, very high risk patients for dying. Um, so when um, they looked at the neutropenic fever patients, the incidence of bacteremia in these patients is up to 25%. So potentially uh, it's every fourth patient. And uh, the infection is documented in 20 to 30% of this patient. I will briefly remind you though, on the definition of febrile neutropenia. So febrile neutropenia is defined uh, as you have an isolated temperature of 101 or you have a temperature of 100.4 sustained over one hour. So the patient who has a non-sustained temperature of 100.4, just an isolated temperature, would not specifically meet your criteria for neutropenic fever. Um, there will be a subset of patients that might have neutropenic fever uh, without sepsis. There will be patients that 
you know, except this fever of 100.4, which is not sustained, will not have anything else and might not have a fever. Um, so those are the patients that, again, after careful evaluation, you might decide that antibiotics are not indicated yet. Um, there is a, also a very important com concept of, of uh, chemotherapy-induced mucositis uh, that um, generates a lot of inflammation and release of inflammatory markers itself. I will show you a very uh, um, useful article that I highly recommend you, you guys all treat. But chemotherapy-induced mucositis is uh, one of the major causes of bacteremia in our patient because there is a disturbance of uh, um, the barrier and it makes it very easy for uh, the endogenous flora org organism just sneak into the bloodstream. Um, we do know that uh, comparing to the past uh, uh, decade and years, there has been a shift from gram-negative to gram-positive organisms. And it has uh, something to do that we use a standard prophylaxis for gram-negative organisms. And uh, most of our patients will, will have a, some sort of a central line. Uh, so that drives the rates for uh, gram-positive sepsis in our patients. So here is what I um, mentioned recently. So uh, this is a, um, the slide on uh, chemotherapy-induced mucositis or mucosal barrier damage. Um, and again, here you see all of uh, um, this um, uh, inflammatory factors and cytokines that are released uh, as a result of that. Uh, this is the paper um, that I mentioned. Again, highly recommend that uh, you get familiar with that. And as you can see, uh, uh, when you have a normal mucosal barrier, there, there is really very little activity going on and everything remains in check. Comparing when you have a mucosal barrier injury or chemotherapy-induced mucositis. So a lot of cytokine release, and um, this by itself can cause a fever as well. This is what I just mentioned on the current trends in the epidemiology and the shift from gram-negative uh, sepsis to gram-positive in our patients. This is, again, the, the reference for that. Um, and uh, I'll briefly go over the febrile neutropenia initial management in high-risk patients. So we, uh, the goal is that um, once you identify that your patient has a, a neutropenic fever or you suspect sepsis, the goal is to um, do an assessment, order initial evaluation, and uh, order stat antibiotics that should be administered by the end of the first hour. That's our goal. So we start with an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam agent such as cefepime, um, which is our drug of choice, Zosin, that uh, we consider using as a first option in case your patient um, had issues uh, uh, with the GI tract, uh, recent GI tract, so you, you need more anaerobic coverage, so mostly think of GI tract uh, issues or issues with a head and neck, maybe recent infections, uh, dental abscesses, uh, or your patient maybe had a simple rash to cefepime, so Zosin would be appropriate to use. Uh, Meropenem is another agent 
but again, remember this is kind of your high class antibiotics that should be reserved only for the patients with uh, either history for or VSBL, or you really have a, a patient uh, with a true um, allergy to all other agents that just would not be an option. Uh, remember that for the ceftazidim use as a single agent is recommended to avoid monotherapy uh, due to rising resistance rate, that number one, and the limited activities against gram-positive flora. So remember patients with mucositis, they're, they're at very high risk for GI flora translocation, specifically strep. So ceftazidim uh, really has a poor coverage against it, and that, that's why the monotherapy is not recommended, especially in patients with uh, active mucositis. Astrionum is another agent that um, is uh, sometimes used in patients with a true beta-lactam agent allergy. However, again, poor agent and choice in patients with neutropenic fever for the same two reasons. So rising resistance rate, number one, and no activity against the gram-positive flora. So you, really, you should not be using um, this agent alone. All right, let me move to the next slide. Um, and uh, we always have an urge to do something else if patient is uh, continues to fever, um, we see, um, uh, or we receive a lot of calls about, you know, let's add vancomycin. However, the studies show that uh, really you should be using vancomycin only if you have certain indications. So a neutropenic uh, patient who is MRSA colonized, history of MRSA infections in the recent past, your patient is hemodynamically unstable, uh, or has other signs of severe sepsis shock. Uh, you, you diagnose patient with a um, hospital-acquired pneumonia, uh, and if you think that that's what's truly going on, you can initiate vancomycin until you uh, get repeat MRSA screen um, and other workup. You have positive blood cultures for gram-positive bacteria while awaiting speciation and susceptibility. Uh, you suspect your patient has a CVC-related infection. Uh, there is a concern for skin or soft tissue infection, or um, you have a patient with severe mucositis um, uh, in whom um, you use suboptimal agents such as ceftazidim or astrionam. So these are the true indications to add vancomycin to the regimen. How recent past the MRSA infection? How far back can you consider it? It's a good question, and I would say um, it's based on the clinical judgment. So if I know that the patient had um, a negative MRSA screen on admission um, and had a history of isolated uh, MRSA skin infection, for example, two years ago, I might not necessarily use it. Uh, if patient gives me a history that there was a history of uh, MRSA bacteremia or any other um, significant MRSA infections in the presence of uh, artificial material in the body, I might be more aggressive with that. Uh, and um, let me... 
So this is a, another slide on uh, um, the addition of BRE coverage in neutropenic fever patients. So as you will see in our uh, on, on the floors uh, where we have patients with heme malignancies, they all undergo MRSA and VRE screen on admission. Uh, that's a protocol. And then if VRE is negative, we keep screening them weekly. Um, and there is a literature saying that in this patient population, VRE infections uh, can be severe. Um, but again, the further studies demonstrated really there was no mortality benefits in uh, empirically initiating VRE coverage in these patients. So we mostly do it um, for infection prevention purposes, number one, and to identify the patients that potentially can be at risk. So you can act upon it um, if you have patient with hemodynamic instability or uh, some other concerns. But uh, at Moffitt, we abandoned um, empiric VRE coverage in neutropenic fever patients, so we do not do it anymore unless, as I said, you have unstable patient or based on the initial microbiologic data, um, you have uh, something telling you that you're dealing with VRE bacteremia. So you have gram-positive coxibacteremia, enterococcus by species, positive on A, on B gene. Um, okay, and um, so this is just one of the reference that Dr. Belush, uh, Yanina um, have recently published. Uh, and uh, I, I really think this you can uh, look through later. Uh, this slide covers what, what do you really do if your patient continues to be febrile um, 48, 72 hours later, which which we see which we see a lot. Um, this is just one slide on the importance of uh, uh, viridans group streptococci bacteremia. So again, something very common that we see here at Moffitt. It can be associated with severe complications such as hypoxia, hypotension, with progression to full shock on ARDS. And this typically happens, uh, again, uh, due to capillary leak syndrome in the lungs that is originated by this uh, robust inflammatory response that uh, can happen with a viridans group strep bacteremia. So again, pay attention to these patients. Um, if uh, this is the patient with this particular condition who is uh, really crashing, you might consider uh, steroid administration. And uh, I have a couple of slides on neutropenic enterocolitis that I think uh, uh, you can review later, but this is uh, something else that um, you all should be aware in neutropenic patients uh, uh, with abdominal pain. So remember, it's typically the right-sided, uh, your classic deflitis, but it sometimes can happen and can happen in uh, other uh, colonic distributions as well. And uh, I think I will stop here. Why is it important? So hospitals have found out over the years that as they're increasing the number of autos and allos that people like Dr. Konkova and myself, we decrease the mortality in the patient population. 
and we're able to use better, more optimized antibiotic use, better stewardship, and we get the patients out of the hospital faster. So actually, we are cost savings to the hospital. That's why there are niche jobs for people like ourselves. You can see these numbers are only going up, and CAR-T is just insane. It's not even on the national uh, CIBMTR websites as of yet. One of my biggest issues when I came back, I was like, I can't understand the thought process. I'm like, I still can't really understand their thought process all the time. Well, I do a better job. A lot of it is trying to figure out like what kind of allotransplant are you going to do? Because these are our sickest patients. They often stay with us. They're on immunosuppression. Average hospitalization is about 22 days. And you can see from the graphic, depending on if they are an only child and they're not married and they didn't have any kids, like they're kind of screwed on their donor potential. So then they go to registries. There are registries here in the U.S., registries in Europe and registries in Japan. And then depending on the person's ethnicity, then we get hopefully a match from the registry or what's considered a mismatch from the registry. Or if Dr. Bajanian has her way, we'll resume doing double cords and then you'll see me crying in the corner because I don't want them. They're very dangerous. Um, the last five of five died. So that's why, thank God, we stopped doing them. But there are attendees who wish to do more of it. So the issue is this, is that the causes of death after, say, you have the best type, which is a match a related sibling, you still have a huge section that's coming from infection which is the blue this lighter blue which is 21 percent and beyond 100 days when they're no longer local is still at 12 percent so that's a huge amount of like death rate and that's why they're always like one to say oh it's infection i'm like no maybe it's cytokine release syndrome and you'll hear us talk about crs a lot or maybe it's a drug reaction or don't forget that graft versus host disease, for example, the donors attacking the poor patient, that can come with a fever, that can come with an eosinophilia. So in all honesty, a lot of times we have to remind the team that not all fevers are infectious, which is great for like practice for an exam, because like you go through the whole gamut about non-infectious cause of the fever. And then this is also looking at should I just say, what should I say? Yeah, I'll take care of that. Okay, perfect. Um, causes of death um, that uh, still infection is huge, 27, and died at 100 days post-transplant, 15. That was for mud, so slightly different donor. They kind of divide everything based on donor. When we do our initial consult, that's always the most important console. Please take your time. We'll never harass you to be like, chop, chop, you need to move faster. Because we understand if we mess up on that initial console, you kind of have that whole wrong idea and you're running the whole time with it. So I mean, like really talk, sit down, talk with the patient, go for all these different types of questions. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? I was like, what are your hobbies? What do you do in your time? Do you go spelunking? And then they look at you confused. I'm like, obviously you don't because you don't even know what the word means. You know, so like these are important things that you need to go over with your patients.
This paper is fantastic, even if it's from 09, Marcy and the group wrote it. And the key thing is you can understand, like, we always are like, so how many days post and you know, with neutropenia or they always, the BMT papers reference to the day the cells go in, that's day zero. So from day zero to 1545 is pre engraftment, but essentially it's when, for lack of a better word, their mouth is jacked up. You've given them chemo, they have mucositis, they're at risk for translocation. Then up to day 100, like I mentioned before, they're still local. So this is as your heavy immune reconstitution. Are they compliant with their meds? Did they remember to take their profies? Are they taking their PCP profi especially? Or are they taking their acyclovir? And then once they're released to the wild, what could you do when you go home? We had a fantastic case, I think just last week, I was like, what restaurant am I never to go to? Because his GIP had three different bacteria and two different viruses. I was like, son of a gun, man, do you not understand? Don't eat at buffets. Don't be doing stupid because you just did super stupid. This is more as a reference, just going over, for example, antifungals. We love our triazoles. This, um, the next slide is even better. Talking about like what's contraindicated with QTCs for us, like I'm very cautious. We use fluoroquinolones, we use triazoles, and then they're like, You're nauseous here, have more QTC prolonging drugs. And I'm like, Oh my god, dude. And then I do an extra EKG and it's long, and they're like, Oh, we need to stop the Cipro. I'm like, How about you stop some of your anti nausea crap? I'm like, What's going to kill your patient, the nausea or pseudomonas sepsis? And they're like, Good point. We'll go stop some of that, you know, anti-nausea stuff. I fully understand. It's really difficult. Nobody wants to be puking out their guts. At the same time, sepsis is sepsis. And you don't want that type of problem. Contraindicated with short QTC, more for your exam, but definitely Crisumba is that drug. Hallucinations. So <laughs> some people are a little bit more aggressive than others. I'm just like upfront with my patients. I'm like 30% of visual alterations. They're like, What's that supposed to mean, Dr. Bill? I'm like, well, most people, they take Vori and they get a halo around the light. Okay. Write a note to mom. I don't care because, like, that's not going to be an excuse to change your meds. So that's why you have to be very careful of setting that thought process to the patient about hallucinations. And then I tell them, like, now, if you start seeing geckos run across the floor, that's not appropriate. If you see a naked woman in the corner, funny, but also not appropriate. I've had that happen when I was an intern, so that's why I could mention it. So you have to be very careful about the vocabulary you use with the patients to ensure you're not setting yourself up to fail. Nephro nephrotoxic, obviously, all types of info, IV formulation, in theory, higher with IV worry, drug level. Actually, I need to update this slide because we're getting more and more aggressive with Goza levels, sometimes even Crisumba levels, but definitely Vori. You should, if you're using it for treatment, you most definitely should be ordering a level. Drug-drug interactions, I just like to echo Dr. Konkova that we have a fantastic set of pharmacists that if you have questions about drugs, please reach out to them. I try to tell people when they're on call, like, hey, this is our pharmacist this weekend because you want that information because 
by all means, give me a ring-a-ding, but sometimes I'll be like, you know, that's a great question, but I don't know the answer because I'm thoroughly imperfect, but let's page or text the pharmacist because sometimes, you know, our gaps of knowledge fit nicely and then they are able to help us out. Photosensitivity rash, we do use a good amount of worry, so you do have to be careful. We live in Florida. We see a lot of, for lack of a better word, older white patients that have skin cancer. So you also have to be careful about prolonged exposure to VORI in those types of patients as well. Transaminitis, because all of these drugs go through the liver, are all at risk. And fluoride accumulation, we have had cases at Moffitt. So you have to be very careful, especially people who have been on VORI six months longer. It could definitely happen. PCP, so definitely you have to be cognizant of this. All of our patients that use fludarabine as the chemotherapy backbone, lymphodepleting equals PCP profit. That is all of our aloes and all of our cars, okay? Dapsone issues are like you have to order G6PD because we have made Smurf and Smurfette. It's very inappropriate. Um, that we have these cases still. Thankfully, it's been a few years, but I mean, unfortunately, people get it even when they're not supposed to. We kind of cheat the system. When we order the G6PD, if it's low, we just put it as an allergy with the reason being low G6PD. Don't you dare make that mistake. Pentamidine. Talk about a specific case. Uh, inhaled pentamidine. Side effect can be bronchospasm. So there was a case patient had Hospital-acquired flu. He got better from the flu. Thoroughly non-compliant. Probably was never going to survive, but this was the issue. He had been in the hospital long enough. He needed PCP profi. So they're like, we're going to get Pentam. I'm like, please don't. He's going to start coughing because he had the flu. No, no, no. It's fine. I'm going to do it. Then I hear the code blue. So what happened was they gave it to him. He had bronchospasm. Then he coughed so much, he vomited. Then he aspirated. Then he went to the ICU, intubated, and was dead within 24 hours. So all that hard work of getting him through transplant, through the flu, he still died. And what do you know? Because of CMS, because the flu was on the same admission, he got dinged as a nosocomial flu with a death, even though it was from a drug. Needless to say, um, that BMT fellow will not make that mistake again. That's a separate thing. This is more for reference, just to remind you, I really think in pictures. So this just goes through why we use certain drugs for antivirals. The key thing is you have to, not all transplant ID crosses over, like SOT, solid organ transplant, is not synonymous with BMT. Because a lot of it is like, do you have kidney function? Do you not? Do you have bone marrow? Do you not? So for example, if you have CMV rhymemia and a BMT patient who has zero counts, you go up, you go directly to Fuscarnet and you pound on the kidney because you have no bone marrow. Flip this. If it's a solid organ transplant patient, their kidneys are going to take a hit the rest of their life because as long as that organ is getting, for example, TAC, it's going to cause TAC-induced nephropathy. So you can't pound on their kidney beans, but they have strong bone marrow. So that's why you go for gangcyclin-based products. So these are the types of interplay that we in Transplant ID get to think about. 
or for you guys when you if you're out in the community and you have that lone kidney transplant patient who pops up in your er and you get consulted you understand what to look for i snagged this um slide as you can see from the id board review because i like it because again it compares the same diseases versus different types of hosts so you can realize that it is not one size fits all this is Jen, just a couple of slides about lativermere. So I'm just going to scope through here some slides about talk about how do we make car. There are also, to be honest, some very nice YouTube videos out there about how car T works. Because the way I think about ID is not only do I need to know my stuff, I need to know the stuff of the people consulting me. And between the two, that's how I give the best care possible to my patients. So this talks about CAR-T manufacturing. CAR-T toxicity, oftentimes you put in the cells within 24 hours, they're having massive fevers. We always do blood cultures, we always do antibiotics, assume the worst, and then you wait. And you see, is it all gonna be negative? So then retrospectively, you could say CRS. That doesn't mean they won't die. I lost a dude yesterday, the one that I saw on the weekend, grade four CRS three, four pressers that, you know, despite everything, they were giving him, They I think they gave him some tosin initially, but they gave him Anakinra, then they give him steroids, and he still did not make it. And this is just a few words about CRS, a few words about neurotox infection, specifically in CAR-T, and that's it. Again, a lot of information, but that's why we printed it on the slides. Dr. Kunkova and I felt that was the best way for the amount of time we had. If you guys have questions, email us. You can get our cell phone, send us a text message. We would rather you give us a call if you feel uncomfortable than, you know, struggle in the middle of the night. That is not the point of us being on call with you, okay? Thank you very much.